Welcome to the Digitally Native podcast, a podcast that explores what it means to be digital and to live digital lives. I'm your host, Fungai, and together we will explore a range of topics and trends around digital and social media and digital innovation. So grab a drink, buckle up, and let's get right into it. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I hope that you are doing well and that you've been having a great February so far. I will start today's episode with a question to you, and you should be very proud of yourself if you know all the answers to the different parts of it. So my question to you is, do you know that the Twitter bird has a name? And by the Twitter bird, I mean that very well-known a uh, little logo of a bird flying that is associated with the social media company. Did you know that that bird has a name? If you answered yes, well done, clap for yourself. Um, because indeed, the Twitter bird has a name. If you actually know the name of the Twitter bird, uh, bonus points to you. Uh, because the Twitter bird's name is actually Larry. I didn't know this until... A few hours ago, when I started looking for something interesting to say um, as an introduction to, to this podcast episode. But indeed, the Twitter bird's name is Larry and he is named or the Twitter bird uh, is named after another Larry. And if you know who that Larry is, wow, I think you're a bit of a, a social media geek because I I don't expect anyone to know. Well, Maybe that's that's too harsh of a of a statement to make. I do I do suppose someone out there listening might know uh, who Larry the Twitter bird is named after. And if you don't know the answer to that, um, Larry the Twitter bird is named after a former NBA player called Larry Bird, who used to play for one of the co-founders of Twitter's state team, which is the Boston Celtics. Um, and the co-founder that the bird is named after or the, the, the co-founder's home state team and team member that the bird is named after is Biz Stone. So there's a little bit of trivia for you to start the podcast. I hope you can use it somewhere um, and make use of it as a, as a way to show your, your knowledge around social media. Well, today's episode, we are discussing... Clubhouse. Now, Clubhouse might ring a bell to some of you. Uh, a few years ago, it was uh, quite a popular social media app that emerged particularly uh, during the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and became something of a, a very popular space for many people who were looking for an audio-only social media app. Um, it allowed thousands of people to uh, meet um, in rooms and discuss different issues and topics that they might have found relevant or interesting to engage about. Um, as I remember it, I didn't use it so much, but what I do remember about Clubhouse was that uh, you entered a room and there tended to be a few, I suppose, moderators and um, what would happen was if you had something to contribute, you had to raise your hand virtually and one of the moderators would uh, see you and then unmute you to be able to speak 
or to engage in the conversation. So in many ways, Clubhouse started to mimic what people were missing out on in the real world uh, as a result of the pandemic, obviously, and not being able to engage physically. It, it mimicked this uh, space where people have a conversation, a kind of structured conversation uh, with moderators and people who kind of guide the, the, the shape and the direction of the conversation. And then, you know, the audience members obviously coming in and asking questions as and when they emerged and arose. Uh, and so in that way, it was a very important application for a lot of people to keep up with issues, to keep up with information, to do different things. I think I remember even once entering a meditation uh, chat room where basically everyone was going through a guided meditation with someone leading it. And then afterwards there was questions. So there were all kinds of different chat rooms that emerged uh, as a result of Clubhouse, some discussed politics, some, you know, just discussed different things that people were interested to keep the conversation going about. And um, one thing that um, uh, Clubhouse managed to do in its time, I mean, it's not that it's it's no longer there. We're coming to the crux of that conversation. Uh, it, it still exists. It just doesn't have the same numbers that it used to have. Uh, one thing that it, it managed to do was to catch the interest quite early of some of the big social media tech, social media gurus, uh, such as Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, who both joined uh, different conversations on Clubhouse during the pandemic. And at one point, the company was worth about four billion US dollars, or so it is quoted as 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 being worth. Um and by 2021, February, uh, Clubhouse daily active users were over $4 million, four, four million were over $4 million, um, which means the daily use of the application was $4 million, which was quite, quite a good figure to have. But by November of that same year, just a few months later, the number had decreased significantly uh, to just under 950,000 followers or um, subscribers or users rather. And so Clubhouse started to go into decline quite quickly. And, you know, there's many different reasons given for why Clubhouse became as popular as it did and why it fizzled out. One of them being around the pandemic. Obviously, there was a lot of use uh, and uptake of digital solutions during the pandemic. Uh, we saw also the rise of spaces like TikTok and uh, obviously Zoom. These were both uh, applications and platforms that had existed prior to the pandemic. And it, it just took the pandemic sort of accelerating their growth because of the new normal that we all lived through. Uh, where we couldn't be around people and, you know, we're, we're interacting more virtually. And so Clubhouse in the same way managed to gather or get the interest of people who were looking for ways to engage and interact with each other. And, and that's partly, I think, why it became as popular as it did at that point in time. 
it, it was somewhat different to a podcast in that there was real-time listening, but also engagement, almost like a conversation, like something live that I think everyone was craving. Whereas, you know, I think podcasts also enjoyed a, a particular uh, uptake or surge during the pandemic. And I don't have the statistics to back that up. I actually have to look that up. It is more an assumption on my part. But um, given that people wanted to engage in real-time activities, it does make sense that uh, Clubhouse became as popular as it did then. And, you know, I mean, there's been many different reasons given for why Clubhouse didn't manage to last uh, or, or to stay as strong as it had as it started out during the pandemic. And, you know, some of those reasons include that new competitors emerged. You started seeing other tech companies copying the format that Clubhouse had come into the space with a kind of uniqueness about uh, you know, Twitter started to roll out its own Twitter spaces. And, you know, those in very similar, in many ways were very similar to Clubhouse. You started having these spaces on the Twitter platform where you could enter chat rooms and have these guided conversations about different things, similar format. You had moderators, you raised your hand and the moderators unmuted you so you could speak and then muted you back. And so in, in very, very many ways, Twitter started to follow a format of spaces. And I think because Twitter had just the bigger following, you know, Twitter has existed for years and it has a massive user base. And so for, for them to roll out an audio only feature means that it's, it's just simply being exposed to more people uh, very quickly uh, than Clubhouse, which was trying to build its user base from scratch. And um, also, I think what's important to note is that when a platform uh, already has a user base, the user base will probably find it easier to continue to use the same platform's different features. So if I'm already active on Twitter and I learn about Clubhouse, I, you know, that's two different applications that I have to sort of navigate. Whereas if I am on Twitter and I learn about spaces, I'm more likely to try Twitter spaces because it's already something that um, the platform that I'm on is offering versus, uh, you know, having to start navigating a new platform and figuring out how it works. So I think the convenience factor also then started taking some of its competition away or started taking some of the user base from uh, Clubhouse away from it. Um, and then also, I think just uh, some people are uh, are less, they're a little bit more suspicious about starting out using different social media apps. They, may, they might not be early adopters uh, or, you know, early, early acceptors of different forms of technology. And so if I'm a slower adopter of a new platform, I'm likely to try to test it out in more comfortable waters if it becomes available. So I'd rather try it on spaces than dive into a completely different app. And so I think that's where you started seeing some of the the market or uh, the audience that could have kept Clubhouse growing 
uh, being taken away by different tech companies that already had them as as users to begin with. And then you also had Facebook roll out what was live audio rooms, which were quite similar. Spotify also introduced something called Green Room. And then also uh, platforms like Discord, which already offered audio features, started to become more palatable or just remain more palatable to people who might have uh, joined Clubhouse. Uh, so th these things start to, to come together. You know, it's the, the pandemic and it's waning, the new competitors coming into the space. Uh, but then I think there's also something that's come up about the lack of a very clear business model for Clubhouse. Um, and this speaks to uh, how the, the competition, competition managed to fill Clubhouse's gap because Clubhouse didn't really seem to have a, a way or a, a way forward beyond the audio only features. Uh, there wasn't really any backup with any other ways of marketing uh, the platform uh, that, you know, most would try to use. And this has been raised by other tech uh, social commentators. We're talking about using email, other social media platforms and, you know, push notifications, finding a way to keep people coming back versus, uh, believing that people will just come back on their own because, you know, of loyalty or of um, the engagement that they have to within the spaces. So there wasn't really an aggressive move on their part to to run with it while they still were, were in the lead, so to speak. And um, I saw this uh, quote, which I'm going to read off of a website, which is www.indiehackers.com. And I'll quote the author of the article who says, talk about platforms like Clubhouse and how and why they failed or didn't reach their full potential. Oh, no, that's not part of that's not actually part of the, the quote. The quote is, quote, I think the biggest thing Clubhouse missed was an engagement loop to bring non-core users back. Clubhouse did a very poor job of utilizing email, push notifications, and other social media platforms to re-engage users. And so this is these are some of the conversation points that have come up around why Clubhouse did not last um, or has lost so much of its user base. I'm not sure what this, the user base is at the moment. Um, I do not have the current statistics, but I hardly hear of anyone doing anything on Clubhouse at the moment. And so my uh, the, the thrust of where I'm going with this conversation is really around whether Clubhouse would have lasted uh, as, as, as well on the African continent. Now, we're looking at it from a global perspective, but then I want to zero in on Africa because obviously that is my main interest area. And I will now zero in on one of the big factors of... Uh, Clubhouse's uh, quote-unquote failure, uh, which has been discussed many times by different people, but which I want to tease out a little bit more, especially from an African perspective. And the factor that I, I, I'm looking at now is the loss of exclusivity. Now, the way I see it, exclusivity on Clubhouse uh, happened on two levels. Clubhouse was exclusive 
for a very long time and for very different reasons. Firstly, when the app was initially rolled out, I think many people will remember that it was only on iPhone or on iOS um, software. And so only iPhone users could use Clubhouse at its initiation. And that was already causing a little bit of a rift, well, not a little bit of a rift, quite a large rift between Android users and iPhone new users. I mean, there's a long-standing tension and... Um, I mean, it's not a battle, but it's, it's, you know, a little bit of a banter between iPhone users and um, Android users around which is better and iPhone users thinking that they are, you know, superior to Android users, etc., etc. And so that was already a very interesting and bold move to take. I mean, they, they say that that was in their beta testing. They were still trying to figure out how the app worked before making it available across uh, the Apple Store and, you know, the Google Play Store. Um, but that put some people off it to begin with. The very fact of exclusivity and exclusion made some people feel that this app was not made with the intention of having Android users. Now, Clubhouse eventually rolled out... Um, a version of the app for Android users. But by that time, I think some people had already decided that they didn't want to join it simply because it had started off as an exclusive thing that excluded them. And that's, you know, that's actually a very big psychological thing that affects and impacts our uses of different spaces and platforms. Um, nothing is value-free and, and everyone is having a human experience of the social realm or of the social media application uh, or platform that they're interacting with. And, and that has a very big pull over whether or not someone will use something that it was not initially made available to them. Now, I mean, most social media apps that we've come across and have adopted have been made mass accessible. Facebook, with its massive database and user base of over a billion, has worked out that way simply because it was accessible. I mean, to be fair, we know that uh, Facebook started off as an exclusive community. I think it started off um, with high school students and then some college students, and then they rolled it out to a larger audience. But perhaps that rollout did not feel as exclusionary as Clubhouse's rollout feels because in a certain way, I mean, they did start with, I mean, students and then, you know, college students and then made it available to mass market. That's a little bit different to if Facebook, for instance, had started off uh, as, a, as a tool, I guess, for businessmen or a specific trade of people who are already perceived to have a lot of privilege. And so if, if they had worked it the other way around, I wonder if Facebook would have enjoyed as much uptake as, as it eventually did. Uh, because that perception of whether something is available to us ourselves makes us make very big decisions about whether we buy something or whether we buy into something. And so I think that's probably where um, Clubhouse had already started on the back foot 
And then I think secondly was that at the beginning of the application's life, um, it was an invite-only feature. This was eventually scrapped, but in order to get into Clubhouse and participate and engage in these chat rooms, um, etc., etc., you initially had to have someone invite you. It was not uh, a space that you could simply, you know, join. It was not like you downloaded the app and then, you know, you were good to go. You actually had to have somebody who was already invited to Clubhouse invite you in. Now, I remember when I joined it that I was kind of trying to figure out what was going on with it, how it worked. And I don't remember leaving a request to join or to enter uh, the, the, the actual application. But I think that there was a, the way, a way of wording a question about your interest in it that then put you on a waiting list. And other users who were already in the application would see that you were kind of in the waiting room and someone could let you in. And that's exactly how I got in. And it kind of tells you, you know, once you're in, it shows you all your contacts who are in. And I was using it on iPhone, so it was picking up all my iPhone contacts and telling me this is who else is on this app. And, you know, it was obviously as a process, that's that's too, just too much for a lot of people to go through having to download something and then get someone to invite them to enter. And then, you know, that exclusivity just gets exacerbated, that lack of, uh, you know, it almost did not want to be, I don't think that Clubhouse naturally intended to be mass-oriented. I think it did want to be an exclusive sort of social media app. And it's only because, you know, other competitors came in and people started having a lot of conversations and debates about that, that they then rolled it out to a bigger user base. But my question on that, going back to just what I'd said a little bit, earlier on was around whether Clubhouse, whatever has happened to it globally, whether it actually ever stood a chance on the African continent. And that speaks, and on that I speak to the idea of the exclusivity that they were trying to cultivate because according to different sources of information, depending on where you look for information about this, Statista.com for instance, cites that by May 2022, 2022, I don't know why I like to say this, like a, a very long form version of it, but 2022, 86.05% of mobile phone users in Africa were on Android, with just 12.1.9% on iOS. <clears throat> now, that speaks to this very uh, different kind of model of exclusion that Clubhouse existed on and whether or not, <clears throat> given that so much of the continent is on Android, the, the application ever really stood a chance to survive because um, if already from the onset you have made an exclusion of certain users who happen to be the biggest user base of um, of social media, 
or, or the, the, the software that they use happens to be the most popular on a continent. The devices that they use happen to be the most uh, ubiquitous. Would a social media application of that nature actually survive? And, you know, I don't know. I don't have the, the statistics for Clubhouse on the African continent. I don't know how far and wide it reached. And, you know, I don't, I don't actually have access to a lot of information about that. But then I think that that was one of the things that would have been a big deterrent for a lot of people. If something is rolled out on the continent and it's only speaking to iPhone users, it's speaking to an extremely, extremely min minimal uh, audience. And so there in lies a challenge because many people will feel like the conversations that are happening on those platforms are not for them. And, you know, I, th I think I started to see this as well. When I looked on Twitter feeds, sometimes I'd see people having these um, clubhouse chat room conversations. And, you know, there was this kind of feeling of, oh, so you people are in that little space talking about issues about the country when most of us don't have access to this application. We don't have the software that allows us to engage. It already created a lot of uh, divisive uh, conversations and feelings of people's, you know, privileges giving them access to information that should have been accessible to everybody. And so I think that was one of the big problems that Clubhouse would eventually have run into um, on the African continent and already ran into in its, in its life where it was quite popular. But I think one thing that someone also mentions, and this is a quote from level5strategy.com. Uh, this is, I'll quote it. Part of Clubhouse's initial appeal came from the ability to meet like-minded people. But over time, the interesting insights and discussions that were initially available in subject rooms became drowned out by divisive comments, rumors, and false promotions. Instead of the smart conversations with globally active and impressively insightful individuals that had been initially promoted, Clubhouse chat rooms became more like drama rooms. So I think that's also something that was really difficult for um, a space like Clubhouse to figure out because conversations can become very, very divisive. I think one thing that I believe they were trying to do by making it exclusionary was trying, or exclusive rather, was trying to counteract some of those issues that do emerge. So if you are in a space and it is a controlled space somewhat where I know you and I let you in from the waiting room. And I guess there's a trust basis that we all engage with similarly minded people. And so if I let the next person through the waiting room and then the next person lets the next person through the waiting room, the assumption I believe is that everyone in that little network is somewhat, uh, similarly oriented in their worldviews, in their ideologies, in their politics, etc. However, when that is no longer the way that people enter a conversation and it's mass, anyone can come in at any time, then obviously there's the potential for trolls and other people who just are not joining spaces to enrich them to actually engage and start to have access to conversations, etc. So it's almost like 
the exclusion was, you know, it was built into the system. But then uh, once it was taken out in the interests of getting a, a higher user base, it started to work against Clubhouse. And so that's also a very interesting thing to look at, particularly for me from an African perspective, where we know that conversations around different kinds of topics, such as politics, um, gender, feminism, activism, uh, and those kinds of conversations really, I think it's across the board. It's not just Africa, but then those kinds of conversations really get people's emotions high and people can, you know, come into conversations simply to uh, cause chaos within them. And so that's the, that's the point at which I suppose a lot of clubhouses shape starts to to shift and, and they can't keep up with all the issues that are coming up because the, the chat rooms are becoming toxic. And so again, the question is, would, would Clubhouse have been a useful tool on the continent, for instance, for discussing politics? I think a lot of people who already engage with political conversations on spaces like Twitter will say that that tends to be a very, very toxic environment for dissent or for counter narratives or counterpoints or anything that doesn't fit within a normative idea of what uh, one should believe politically. So it's, you know, once it, it actually becomes something that's not just you writing text um, in the form of a tweet and you actually have a voice and an audience to speak, that also brings up a whole lot of issues around moderation and, you know, keeping everybody together on the same page or trying to engage in ways that are um, mature and that are fruitful. And so, it, I mean, everything that we see on the social media space is a reflection of our real lives, the, the, the real material lives that we live. And so I guess the question is, so if that was what was happening on Clubhouse, does it not then just mirror what happens in real life? Do we not have conversations that are exclusionary? Do we not have spaces that are exclusionary, that are exclusionary by class, by access, by which network you're involved in? And then is it not also that we tend to say that once we open up spaces to the quote-unquote masses, then they become corrupted and they, you know, they're not as... Um, high quality or respectful or engaging in the ways that we would like to engage in conversations. So I suppose in certain ways, Clubhouse mirrors a lot of these different issues that we're still grappling with. How do we have mature conversations across so many different divides and bring everyone's uh, point in and engage with it to the point that it is respectful and that it is towards uh, building enlightenment and informed conversation. I don't know the answer to that, but I thought I'd just use Clubhouse as a little bit of an example to start to walk through some of that and leave you with a few things to think about. I hope that this episode has been helpful to you and that um, you are enjoying the podcast so far. Thank you so much to everybody who does uh, give a shout out to the podcast or who supports it by listening. I really do appreciate you and I wish you a good rest of the day. Do take care. Thank you.